Uh, if you will open your Bible, if you have your Bible in front of you, to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, the, the scripture passage is also printed there in your bulletin, uh, so you can follow along there as well. And we're going to be continuing a series that we started recently in 2 Samuel. Uh, and I'm very excited to have the opportunity to, uh, to share in sharing God's word with you this morning from this passage. I think it has a lot of very important things to tell us. So uh, let's hear now from the word of the Lord. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone in his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it this morning. Uh, Father, we are thankful that you are a God who has spoken. Uh, we are thankful that you are a God, Lord, who still speaks today uh, through Christ in scripture. And so we ask now as we uh, sit here ready to receive your word that you would guide the words of my mouth, that you would guide the meditations of our hearts and that they would be pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a little refresher here on where we are in 2 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, which are in Hebrew originally one book. Uh, at the very end of 1 Samuel here, Saul, the king of Israel, and his son Jonathan have just died. And David, if you, if you know your Old Testament storyline, has been on the run from Saul and Jonathan, uh, trying to preserve his life because God had chosen him to be the, the new king of Israel and Saul didn't like that. So Saul had been hunting David down for quite some time and finally Saul and Jonathan are dead. And when David hears the news, we, we heard about this last week, when David hears the news, uh, he mourns over Saul and Jonathan. And so here in chapter two now, uh, the way is clear for David to take over the kingdom. Uh, David is ready to take his rightful place as the king of God's people, uh, which had been set before him a long time ago by the prophet Samuel. And so I want you to imagine for a moment, if you're David, 
Saul, who's been hunting you down and who's obviously gone off the rails and has departed from the Lord, is finally dead and the kingdom is wide open. What would you do? What would be your next move? What strategic moves would you make? Uh, as a kid, I loved playing the board game Stratego. Has anyone here ever played Stratego? It's maybe not. I think it's exciting. But you, you have all these different pieces. And it's like you're maneuvering this army with all these different units that can move in different ways and have different strengths. Uh, similar to chess. It's a slightly different kind of game of chess in some ways. And, and David here had to have been thinking about the strategic possibilities. The way lies open. Saul's army has just been decimated by the Philistines. Surely he can conquer the kingdom. But what David does in this passage is very different. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that David's actions here in establishing his kingdom tell us a lot about how Jesus, our Savior, goes about establishing his kingdom. Uh, David, in the Old Testament, is a type of Christ. He is someone who is designed to point forward to a greater reality that is fulfilled in Jesus. And the way we see him establishing his kingdom in this passage will help us to understand what it means to belong to the kingdom of God under the rule of Jesus. When we think of Jesus as king, oftentimes we think, at least in my experience, oftentimes in American Christianity, we think of a very individualized reality. Uh, we think of Jesus as king, meaning Jesus is the ruler of my individual life, my heart, my actions. And that is true. There is truth to that. That's not wrong. But what I hope you'll see today is that this passage is showing us that there is a much greater reality to what it means that Jesus is the king establishing God's kingdom on earth. What I hope you'll see this morning is that Jesus, as the king of God's kingdom, changes everything about the world that we live in and gives us a joy and a hope that cannot be found anywhere else. So let's look at this passage today and see how Jesus, as the king of God's kingdom, establishes his kingdom to bring God's blessings to his people. Uh, we're going to look at first here at verses 1 through 4, through the first half of verse 4 here. I'm going to read them again just to give us a little refresher. It says, After this, after David lamented over Saul and Jonathan, he inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone with his, uh, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So I've already pointed out, and you've probably already noticed here, that when David mourns Saul and Jonathan, he does his due diligence, he's not over-eager, uh, he doesn't make the strategic move we might expect. If you're a king in waiting, if you're waiting to take over a kingdom that God has given to you, and the king and his army are wiped out by an enemy, what would be the logical next move? It would be to sweep in and take over the entire kingdom. It would be to consolidate 
power as quickly as you possibly can. Um, I'm reading a book about the Russian Revolution right now, and one of the things that's really interesting about the Russian Revolution is the way that the Bolshevik Party, led by Lenin, who you've probably heard of, were so intelligent about finding the right moment, moment to just grab power, to just take over everything and wipe out their enemies. And if David was making a smart strategic decision, that's what we would expect him to do. But what does David do after he mourns? He inquires of the Lord. David is not over eager to grab power for himself. Instead, he waits for God's direction. And, and just as sort of an aside, I think David is doing something here that many of us struggle to do, which is waiting on God's direction when things are going well. It's really easy in a lot of ways to, to look to God for direction when things are going terribly because you have nowhere else to go, right? When things are awful, it's easy to say, God, I need your help. I need your guidance. But when things are going well, it's so easy to get ahead of ourselves to just start running forward full steam ahead because obviously this must be right. But David is not like us in that way. He waits on God's direction and God's direction is not what might be our natural first reaction. God does not tell him, go take over the kingdom, consolidate power. No, God tells David, go to Hebron, the capital of the tribe of Judah at the time, and be anointed king in Judah. And that's it. David settles for merely taking power over one tribe rather than taking control of the entire kingdom. And this, this might seem counterintuitive. If I was in David's position, I might be wondering, okay, so after I take Hebron, then I can sweep north and wipe out the remnants of Saul's army and take power, right? But that's not what God directs David to do. Instead, God seems to say, reading between the lines here, wait, that's enough for now. Take power in Hebron. And so the important thing to note here about what David is doing as the king of God's people is that God's king always establishes God's kingdom in God's way. God's king, the true chosen king of God's people, will always go about establishing his kingdom in God's way, with God's wisdom and God's timing, rather than by the wisdom and the power of man. David here is kind of the polar opposite of Saul in a lot of ways. One of the most famous episodes of Saul's reign, one of the things that got him in a lot of trouble and, and was the initial kind of break between him and God in a lot of ways, uh, was when he was supposed to meet the prophet Samuel before he went into battle and make a sacrifice. But only Samuel was supposed to make the sacrifice. And when Samuel didn't show up, and it seemed like people weren't on board, they were kind of losing the momentum, what did Saul do? Well, he made the sacrifice himself. Saul was not willing to wait on God's timing and God's way. Later on in his reign, uh, right before this final battle with the Philistines where he dies, Saul feels like God has abandoned him. And so he goes to a medium, someone who can try to conjure up spirits to try to find direction. He's not willing to wait on God's direction. But David, 
as the true king of God's people, David as the anointed king, David as the man after God's own heart, only establishes God's kingdom in God's way, even when it's counterintuitive, even when it doesn't make sense by human standards. And in this, David is pointing forward to Christ, the true king of God's people. Christ, when he came to establish his kingdom, did it in just about the most counterintuitive way possible. When Jesus came to establish his kingdom, uh, he did not show up with an army strapped with armor and a sword and tell the emperor of Rome or the governor of Judah to bow down. No, he came as a humble servant who died on a cross for the sins of his people. That's as counterintuitive as it gets. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 1, the apostle Paul dedicates a whole stretch of verses to talking about how the gospel of Christ is foolishness to the world. The gospel of Christ, the message of Jesus as king, looks absolutely ridiculous by human standards. Because what kind of king shows up without an army and gets executed? And yet that is the way that Jesus establishes his kingdom. Because like David, Jesus establishes God's kingdom in God's way. And the thing about God's way is he often works counterintuitively. He often works in ways that we don't expect. And I actually want to read you a stretch of a few verses from 1 Corinthians that illustrate this point. In 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 27, this is what it says about the gospel. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God often chooses to establish his kingdom in counterintuitive ways so that the glory would go to no one but him. God chooses to use small things, weak things, things that in the world look foolish, so that when his kingdom triumphs, it's obvious that he is the one behind it and he gets all of the glory. And so with David here in 2 Samuel, God does not do the, the proper strategic thing. Instead, he has David wait and with Jesus, God does not send Jesus in with a fiery sword and a huge army to conquer. But instead, he sends him in as a weak, humble, crucified savior. So that it would be obvious that only God could, uh, could accomplish victory through that, kind of, through that kind of means. Only God can accomplish victory in the way that he does. We see this, this kind of example in other parts of the Bible as well. Many of you know the story of Gideon. How God reduced Gideon's army from many thousands of troops down to 300. So that it would be obvious that it was God's power and not Gideon's power that won the battle. God's king always establishes God's kingdom in God's way. And this counterintuitive way of establishing the kingdom is actually the mark of true kingship. This, this submission to God's will, even in the face 
of what seems like terrible strategic decisions, even in the face of what seems like it doesn't make any sense, this submission is the mark of the true king of God's people. And so we can be confident just as David here is demonstrating that he is the true king by submitting to God's will, Jesus demonstrates that he is the great and true king of God's people because he submitted to God's will. He was obedient even to death, even the death on a cross. And therefore, as, as we consider this way of establishing God's kingdom, it, this calls out a few tendencies within us. Uh, we often assume that the most impressive, the most powerful, the most outwardly successful is what's blessed by God, is what is doing the work of God. When it comes to churches, oftentimes the judgment people make is that the biggest and the flashiest and the loudest and the youngest is obviously where God is at work. Uh, when it comes to nations, oftentimes people assume that whatever nation has the greatest military might and the most global dominance is the nation that God has chosen as his favored nation. We often look on outward appearance to determine where God is working. But God here is inviting us by reminding us of how he establishes his kingdom. He's inviting us instead to look for where God's true king is at work, regardless of how impressive it is. If we want to see where God's kingdom is, we don't look for what's flashy and impressive. We look for where Christ is. Because those who seek to build God's kingdom apart from the rule of God's chosen king, even if they seem to be making great decisions, even if they seem to be really successful, ultimately they will fail. It's significant that David was chosen first as king of Judah. In Genesis 49, uh, Joseph, uh, sorry, Jacob rather, is blessing his sons, his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel right before he dies. And he says something very significant about Judah. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And so we have a hint here that even as David is establishing his kingdom, even though he still has 11 tribes to go, even though his kingdom may look small, his victory is inevitable. God's king always establishes God's kingdom in God's way. And so we should look for God's kingdom wherever we see the true king working, not where we see whatever is flashiest and most impressive. Let's move on to the second part of verse 4 here. I want to read through verse 7 as well again to refresh our memories. It says, When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David goes up to Hebron, he establishes himself as king over Judah, and then he sends a messenger. He hears that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had, which was a town not in Judah, it was further north, they had gone and recovered Saul's body from the Philistines and had given him a proper burial. And so David sends them a message. And first he commends them for their loyalty, which was not just loyalty to Saul, but loyalty to God, because Saul was the anointed king of God's people. And he tells them 
or he blesses them, essentially. He gives them a benediction saying, the Lord, may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness. And these words, steadfast love and faithfulness, are really crucial words in the Old Testament. Uh, if you read the King James and the New King James, these would be translated as mercy and truth. It's the same two terms there. Uh, steadfast love is God's covenant love for his people. It's the goodness and the kindness and the favor of God that he has promised to his people. And we see that term steadfast love throughout the Old Testament describing God's care for his people. And his faithfulness is his unchanging nature that guarantees that that love will remain forever. And so put together, when, when David is blessing them with God's steadfast love and faithfulness, God is essentially saying, or David is essentially saying rather, you have the kindness and favor of God upon you. May you be in right relationship with God. May you have all the goodness and the favor that God pours out upon those whom he loves. This isn't just some kind of empty well wish as when we say goodbye to one another or when we send someone a message and say, hope you're doing well. No, David is wishing upon them, blessing them with the very favor of God. But David doesn't stop with just hoping that they get the favor of God. It's interesting. He follows that up in verse 6 with, And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. So David says, May you receive the favor, the love, the kindness of God. And then he tells them how they're going to receive the favor, the love, the kindness of God. And it is through the rule of God's chosen king. God's favor and God's kindness don't just show up in some kind of abstract way. No, David is saying the way that you get this favor, the way that you receive God's love, the way that God is going to bless you and smile upon you is through me, through my rule over God's people. God's favor is given through God's chosen king. And again here, while there is truth to this, David is pointing forward to a greater reality than himself here. David is pointing forward to, the, to how Jesus himself, as the king of God's people, is the means that God uses to bless his people. We don't receive God's favor. We don't receive God's kindness. We don't receive God's mercy just in some abstract, generic sense. No, we receive it when we trust in the appointed king that God has given to his people, when we are under the rule and the care and the protection of God's chosen king, and that is the King Jesus. God's favor doesn't come any other way. Uh, there, are, there are many arguments out there today for the exclusivity of Christianity, that salvation only comes through Jesus. But one I think that often gets overlooked is God's kingdom. The kingdom is actually an argument for the exclusivity of Christianity because God's kingdom is where he is restoring all things. God's kingdom is where he is bringing dead sinners to life. God's kingdom is where he is bringing people into relationship with himself. And you can't be in the kingdom if you're not under the rule of the king. You can't be part of God's kingdom without submitting to his chosen king, Jesus. Imagine, if you will for a moment, in medieval Europe, imagine you're in France and you're a knight traveling through France 
and you, you're traveling through there, and you say, oh, that castle looks really nice. I'd love to go feast there with the king, uh, but I'm not going to submit to him. I'm actually just going to kind of ignore him the whole time I'm there. Would the king of France allow that? No, he wouldn't, right? No king is going to allow someone in their kingdom who will not submit to them in some way. And so to be part of the redemptive work that God is doing in the world, we must submit to God's chosen king. But notice too that David does not send this message in an angry and demanding and coercive way. David instead is inviting the men of Jabesh Gilead to join his kingdom. And that is much like what Jesus does for us as well. Jesus does not demand, although one day when he returns in judgment, uh, there will be harshness, but Jesus does not demand, he invites us. He beckons us into his kingdom. He gives us the promises of the blessings of God when we submit ourselves to his rule. And these, these promises, these blessings often seem far away. Uh, this might feel very abstract and unrelated to daily life. For the men of Jabesh Gilead, it might have seemed that way. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, Jabesh Gilead was not in Judah. Jabesh Gilead was far north in the kingdom of what would eventually become Ishbosheth, Saul's other son. And so for them, for David to say, be part of my kingdom, submit to me, and I will pour out favor and blessings upon you. It might have been easy for them to say, all the way from down there in Judah, what are you going to do for me? And for us, as we grapple with the reality of the already and the not yet, the fact that Christ has established his kingdom, but that his rule has not yet covered the entire earth, that there is still a battle going on, as we grapple with that, it might feel very unhelpful to say, submit to Christ and you'll receive all the blessings and promises of God. Because you and I both know from experience that we don't experience that in fullness right now. We don't get the fullness of the blessings until the kingdom is fully established when Christ returns. We do get some of it now, but there is a tension here. And that's why when David invites the men of Jabesh Gilead, he says, let your hands be strong and valiant. It is a leap of faith to submit ourselves to the rule of Christ in this life. But only when we submit ourselves to Christ, only by trusting in God's chosen king, can we receive the fullness of the blessings of God for his people. The God who made himself to be the only thing that gives us satisfaction. The God who is the source of all goodness. The God who will right every wrong and wipe away every tear. But there's another reason that it requires a lot of courage to trust in Christ now. And that brings us to the final section of this passage. If you'll look with me at verses 8 and 11. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. 
So we see here that not only does the kingdom of David look small and weak, not only would the men of Jabesh Gilead probably be scratching their heads and saying, well, why are you hiding out in Hebron? But we see that over time, a rival kingdom is established. Abner, who is the commander, the general of Saul's army, takes Ishbosheth, uh, Saul's fourth son, whose name literally means son of shame, and makes him king over a rival kingdom. And this process probably took a few years. You may, if, you, if you were paying close attention, you may have noticed there's a little bit of a discrepancy with the number of years that they're king. It says Ishbosheth was king for two years, but David is king over Judah for seven years. So most scholars think that it took a few years for Ishbosheth to get set up on the throne. But either way, the key thing here is that Ishbosheth is now setting up this rival kingdom, this kingdom that is opposing David, even though it is certain that Abner and Ishbosheth and many of his followers would have known that David had been anointed as God's chosen king. They would have known that the prophet Samuel, before he died, had anointed David king over all Israel, not just Judah. They would have known that David was destined to rule over God's people. And so why do they oppose David and his kingdom? I think this goes right back to what we saw at the beginning of this passage. The apparent smallness, the apparent weakness, the counterintuitive nature of what David is doing leaves a power vacuum. He isn't ruling and taking power like an earthly king would rule and take power. And what does Israel want more than anything? In 1 Samuel, they want a king like the nations. They want a king who is going to rule like all the other kings. A king who's going to put his fist down and be strong and take control and dominate his enemies. And so when David fails to do that, he looks weak. He looks small. He looks unsure. He looks easy to topple. And so Abner, this military strongman, sets up Ishbosheth uh, for one reason to look like the nations, perhaps to continue the succession from Saul, but also possibly as a bid for a king that he can control so he can have some power and some influence so he can play the strongman. And this kingdom that Abner sets up would, in a lot of ways, look a lot more impressive than David's kingdom. It would have the legitimacy of the succession. Ishbosheth is Saul's son. It would have a much greater swath of territory and a much higher percentage of the tribes of Israel. And so, if David's down here ruling in Judah and Ishbosheth is ruling over all the rest of Israel, who does it look like is winning? Not David. And we see here a pattern that is set up throughout Scripture that God's kingdom is always opposed by earthly kingdoms. And oftentimes, those earthly kingdoms look a lot better. Psalm 2 describes this pattern here. I want to read the first two verses of Psalm 2 for us. Describing this pattern of the opposition to God's kingdom. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Throughout history and even down to our day, God's kingdom is always opposed by earthly kingdoms. God's kingdom always faces opposition and that opposition often looks a lot better than what God is offering. 
By human standards, the kingdom of Ishbosheth looked like it was in a much better position to conquer David than the other way around. And Jesus, in establishing the kingdom of God for his people, Jesus, in bringing salvation, is in a very similar situation. When Jesus comes to earth, he is opposed by the Roman Empire, by the religious rulers of the Jewish people at that time, by pretty much every power structure that exists in the world. Jesus is opposed. And what is one backwoods carpenter from Nazareth going to do against the Roman Empire? What is a crucified man going to do against the religious leaders of the Jewish people? The kingdoms of the world, when Jesus came on earth, looked a lot more powerful, looked a lot more impressive. If you're standing there watching Jesus be crucified and you have to pick sides in that battle, whose side are you going to pick? Obviously, we know the right answer. But we also know that the overwhelming power of the Roman Empire drove a lot of people the other way. And that is the pattern, again, that God works through because God is guaranteeing that the glory comes to no one but himself. God allows these earthly kingdoms to be set up in opposition to his kingdom so that when he topples them against all odds and against all expectations, he would be glorified for his power and his wisdom and his grace to his people. Ishbosheth's kingdom looked a lot stronger, but we get an indicator here, even at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 2, that his time is limited. We see that Ishbosheth only reigns for two years. And we see this refrain throughout this passage that David is the king of Judah. And again, Judah, for the readers of this book, when it was first written, would have set off alarm bells. Judah, that's, that's the tribe that has the scepter. That's the tribe that's going to produce the ruler. And so David looks weak. David looks pitiful. David looks maybe scared even compared to the northern kingdom. And yet, it's obvious that as small and as powerless as his kingdom looks, he is going to conquer. The enemies of God's kingdom have a very limited time. God has them on a very strict schedule and their time is about to be up. And the same is true for us today as we, again, live in the tension of the already and the not yet. Our situation is much like the situation of David's followers and of the people of Jabesh Gilead at this time. I hope you see the parallel. Like the people of Jabesh Gilead, we are not with our king. We are not in the fullness of the kingdom yet. There is some distance. We are an outpost and like David's kingdom at this time, Jesus has not fully established his kingdom over all the earth. And so as we live in this already and not yet, as we live in this period of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, there is a lot of opposition. That has not changed. God's kingdom is opposed on every side by the kingdoms of this world. God's kingdom is opposed by all kinds of alternative rulers who are inviting us or demanding that we submit to their rule. And this isn't just in the form of political nations. It could be in the form of a nation that opposes the church and opposes the gospel. 
But this comes in many forms in our world today. Just like Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, the enemy is good at adapting his kingdom to match. Extreme politics in America provide one example on either side. When we begin to view a political leader or a political agenda as the way to salvation, as the way to bring about heaven on earth, essentially we view it as the way to bring about the blessings of God without bothering with God's king. Whether you're extremely progressive or extremely conservative. For many younger people, and I I would include myself in this category of being affected by this, social media becomes an alternate kingdom, becomes an enemy kingdom that is vying for your attention and your submission that you would look to it to provide the satisfaction that you're supposed to find in God's blessings. Obviously, other religions that exist oppose God's kingdom, but again, there are many far less obvious oppositions. In America, perhaps the good life is one of the most insidious. That desire for just a comfortable life and being a decent person. And that's all I really need to worry about. The rest will fall into place. Many people wonder, and this is a common question in America today, if you talk to people about your faith, why do you have to bother with being so religious? Why not just be a nice person? Like, I'm a decent person. That's good enough. But the good life is no substitute for the chosen king of God. And so I I would encourage you to ask yourself now and throughout this day, meditate perhaps on these questions. Where am I being invited to look for God's blessings apart from God's chosen king? Where am I being enticed to try to find the satisfaction and the joy and the peace that God alone can give without submitting myself to God's king. And perhaps also you can ask yourself, where am I being pressured or coerced into submitting to another ruler? Maybe it's the pressure that you feel at work to sacrifice your values, to sacrifice what you believe is right. Maybe it's the pressure you feel from your friends, from the people around you, to sacrifice what you know Christ would have you do for the sake of fitting in. There are all kinds of temptations and pressures on us to submit ourselves to alternate kings, to try to find blessing, to try to find happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment. But as we've seen, only through God's chosen king can we truly find blessedness. And so as we we conclude this morning... I want to ask you, why should you give your loyalty to Christ? Why should you submit yourself to Jesus as the king of God's kingdom? The king of not only your life, but the king of all creation. And the one who is establishing God's kingdom on earth. First, because even though it may look small and weak now... The kingdom of Christ is inevitable. His victory is coming. And so while it may feel difficult and counterintuitive now, there will be a day, as Philippians says, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And second, we should submit ourselves to Christ. We should Trust in Christ because only in him do we receive the blessings of God's promises. 
And so I, I want to encourage you, if you're a believer here this morning, I want to encourage you that as difficult as it might feel to trust in Christ, as difficult as it might feel to believe that God's kingdom is really coming, as difficult as it might feel to believe that those blessings that God has promised to his people are real, he will be victorious in spite of whatever it may seem. And if you are not a believer, if you're unsure, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you, I want to plead with you to come to Christ the King this morning. To experience and taste of the goodness and the blessings that only God can give. And to be part of a kingdom that is like a mustard seed. That begins small, seemingly very unimportant, but blossoms into a powerful tree that gives shade to all who come under its branches. Let's pray. Lord, we are so quick to look at human metrics in judging success. Father, I know I am so quick to look at outward appearances to try to determine where you're working. Thank you, Father, that you are a God who works through the small things of the world that you are a God who works through the weak things of the world. Please help us to have eyes to see the reality of your kingdom, Lord. Help us to have hearts that submit to your chosen King Jesus and let that fuel us with joy and courage as we face the opposition of the enemy and as we wait for the final establishment of your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.